Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, listeners may have heard that Texas Governor Greg Abbott has installed barrels wrapped in razor wire in some parts of the Rio Grande to block migrants from crossing and harm those that try. As revealed by the Houston Chronicle, Texas troopers have been ordered to push people back into the river and to deny them water. The cruelty is obvious. The DOJ is talking about suing. But there are other ways for immigration policy to be inhumane. Advocates have long declared that Biden's asylum restrictions, which look an awful lot like Trump's asylum restrictions, are not just harmful but unlawful. And a federal judge has just agreed. We'll learn about that from a participant in the case, Melissa Crow, Director of Litigation at the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies. Also on the show, in October of 2017, the New York Times ran a story headlined, Why the Athletic Wants to Pillage Newspapers, that began, quote, By the time you finish reading this article, the upstart sports news outlet called The Athletic probably will have hired another well-known sports writer from your local newspaper, close quote. In January of 2022, the Times bought The Athletic for $550 million, saying that, quote, as a standalone product, The Athletic is a great complement to The Times, close quote. It's now July 2023, and The New York Times has announced it's shutting down its sports desk, outsourcing that reporting to The Athletic. Dave Zirin joins us to talk about that. He's sports editor at The Nation, host of the Edge of Sports podcast, and author of many books, including A People's History of Sports in the United States. That's coming up, but first, a look back at some recent press. As Elias Corey writes for FAIR.org, around this time last year, Fox News's Laura Ingram claimed that Europe is a total basket case, with life for normal working people becoming increasingly miserable. Even with all of our problems, Ingram said, our economy is still stronger than Europe's. In 2021, our GDP was about $23 trillion or so. The GDP for the entire EU, which has 27 member states, was just over $17 trillion. The Financial Times reached a parallel conclusion. Europe has fallen behind and cannot compete with the U.S., the paper said. The proof? Gross domestic product. Quote, in 2008, the EU and the U.S. economies were roughly the same size. But since the global financial crisis, their economic fortunes have dramatically diverged, close quote. Both Fox and the Financial Times strategically use nominal GDP figures, which are based on how much it would cost to buy all of a nation's outputs on the world market. This is a measure that makes Europe look good in 2008, when it took a record high $1.47 to buy one euro, and makes the U.S. look much better in 2022, when you only needed a five. To compare living standards, however, you need to use what's called purchasing power parity, or PPP GDP. 
This adjusts for the fact that exchange rates are not always a true measure of a currency's domestic purchasing power. It's PPP that tells you how much a given nation can purchase in total goods and services, which is what determines its standard of living. According to World Bank data adjusted for purchasing power, the U.S. and EU have roughly equivalent GDPs, $25.5 trillion versus $24.3 trillion. The Wall Street Journal joined in condemning the continent where, quote, an aging population with a preference for free time and job security over earnings ushered in years of lackluster economic and productivity growth, close quote. They added, quote, Life on a continent long envied by outsiders for its art de vivre is rapidly losing its shine as Europeans see their purchasing power melt away. The French are eating less foie gras and drinking less red wine. Spaniards are stinting on olive oil. Finns are being urged to use saunas on windy days when energy is less expensive. Close quote. To back up these claims, the journal uses wages measured in dollars, looking once again from the cherry-picked year of 2008 to 2022. If Europeans traded in the euros they earned for dollars, they would have done very well in 2008 and much worse in 2022. But this is completely irrelevant to how many domestic products, like red wine and olive oil, Europeans can buy. And of course, GDP itself is just a rough proxy for standard of living. It only sums the market value of final goods and services produced within a country in a given year. So an ambulance ride, which can cost thousands in the U.S., would boost GDP by that amount. Would you say overcharging for essential medical services makes the average person's life better? The U.N. created the Inequality Adjusted Human Development Index, a measure that combines income, education, and life expectancy and accounts for how these are distributed among the population. Every nation in the top 10 is European. The United States doesn't appear until number 25, tied with Cyprus and below Malta and Estonia. We can see what the Europe is dying storyline is really about, Corey notes, by what these hit pieces blame for Europe's supposed miseries. At Fox, it's green policies that are killing Europe. The journal claimed popular health care services and pensions are unfit for fixing the problem of European decline and that tax rates are too high. None of this skewed coverage should convince you that progressive social policy is a failed experiment. The reports of Europe's death are strategic and greatly exaggerated. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you by the Media Watch Group FAIR. A typical headline, this one from CBS News, reads, quote, Judge rejects U.S. asylum restrictions, jeopardizing Biden policy aimed at deterring illegal border crossings, close quote. So something is jeopardized that was aimed at deterring something illegal. CBS Morning News announced that a federal judge, quote, blocked a new Biden administration policy aimed at reducing illegal crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border. The policy took effect in May, and it seemed to be working. In June, the number of crossings plummeted, close quote. 
Whether the goal is deterring or reducing may shift your vision a bit of what a policy working entails, though the unexamined nature of the word illegal remains constant. And CNN echoed many others in labeling the ruling, most importantly, a major blow to the Biden administration. What does the ruling from a California Northern District Court say? And what lives besides Biden's political one are at stake? We're joined now by Melissa Crow, Director of Litigation at the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies. Welcome back to Counterspin, Melissa Crow. Thanks so much, Janine. Well, what policy is it that the district court judge ruled unlawful? And where did that policy come from? It is a rule promulgated by the Biden administration that is inaccurately termed circumvention of lawful pathways. The rule essentially makes people ineligible for asylum if they transited through a third country on their way to the United States, unless they did one of three things. They applied for and were denied protection in a country of transit unless they applied for and obtained parole under a certain DHS-designated program, Mm -hmm. or unless they obtained an appointment through the CBP-1 mobile app to present at a port of entry at a particular time. There are some very narrow exceptions, but they generally don't apply in practice. Mm -hmm. So District Court Judge Tiger, is it Tiger? Um, ruled that that was unlawful. And on what grounds did he make that ruling? On three separate grounds. First, the judge found that the rule is contrary to law for pretty much the same reason that both the District Court and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals found that prior Trump-era restrictions that were very similar were also illegal. The Immigration and Nationality Act provides that anyone who enters the United States, regardless of their immigration status and regardless of their manner of entry, should be able to apply for asylum. This rule flies in the face of that protection. The second ground is that the rule is arbitrary and capricious. Essentially, Judge Tiger saw through the government's smokescreen of all of these so-called lawful pathways. Mm -hmm. And he himself, in the decision, noted a number of situations where people wouldn't be eligible for any of the alleged pathways that the rule supposedly provides. And then the CBP-1 appointment requirement It is just a condition that the Immigration and Nationality Act doesn't include. And Congress never envisioned this kind of a barrier to applying for asylum in the U.S. The third basis on which the judge found it to be illegal is that the government failed to comply with the required notice and comment procedures under the Administrative Procedure Act. They only provided 30 days for comment as opposed to the usual 60 days. And it's a really complicated rule. Mm -hmm. I can vouch for the fact that many advocates didn't sleep much during those 30 days and certainly would have done an even more comprehensive job in commenting on the flaws in the rule if they'd had more time. That's very interesting. It's almost as though it was kind of being pushed through. 
CNN said, without elaboration, administration officials have rejected the comparison to Trump era rules. That's true as a sentence. They have rejected those comparisons. But it sounds like mm, sounds like that doesn't necessarily square with reality. There is a lot of similarity here. There is absolutely a lot of similarity. We've referred to it in the past as a mashup of the Trump era entry ban and transit ban on asylum. Well, let me just ask you, it sounds like you've answered it, but maybe just to tease it out, the phrase illegal crossing appears in every story. You know, um, we're trying to deter, we're trying to reduce, we're trying to curb illegal crossings. Is that a useful phrase? It is not a useful phrase. As I said, Section 1158 of the Immigration and Nationality Act provides a right to apply for asylum regardless of an individual's manner of entry. And that is why the initial Trump-era entry ban and the entry ban implicit in this rule are in violation of law. It doesn't matter if you come in at a port of entry or between ports of entry, you are still entitled to apply for asylum in this country. I wonder where Texas Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez got the factoid that he tossed off on Face the Nation saying that, quote, right now, nine out of 10 people that come over illegally do not qualify for asylum, close quote. In context, he was saying that Texas troopers pushing children back into the Rio Grande is very terrible, but in general, attention there is sort of barking up the wrong tree, and we really ought to be talking about something else. But where does he get that 9 out of 10 number? I honestly don't know where he gets that 9 out of 10 number. I'd be very curious to know. And I would emphasize that the asylum process is supposed to be based on case-by-case adjudication. Right. So either an asylum office or an immigration judge would need to listen to the facts of the case of any of those children or anyone else who's seeking asylum in this country before they can decide if the claim is meritorious. Well, reporting evinces nowadays an implicit acceptance of the goal of border management, keeping things under control, keeping immigrants' efforts to enter from surging. The way we're to understand that the U.S. is doing things right is if there are just fewer people trying to enter. It sort of seems that a goal that we didn't necessarily buy into is now implicitly in the background of everything we read and hear. That is not what the Immigration and Nationality Act says. Mm -hmm. And we seem to be prioritizing efficiency over the law, quite frankly. You have suggested that instead of defending this policy, and it looks like the administration is going to appeal this ruling, the administration should instead be taking steps towards a fair and humane process. What would be some of the key elements of that fair and humane asylum process? It should, of course, be premised on case-by-case adjudication, as we just discussed. Mm -hmm. But it It has to comply with the law. People have to be able to access the asylum process, regardless of manner of entry, regardless of status. And one thing that I would note is that we know that the Department of Homeland Security can reallocate resources when they need to. Mm -hmm. We saw it in the family detention context, which was also illegal, I would argue, but we saw facilities 
where the government housed families pop up almost overnight. We see it when they send more asylum officers to the border or more immigration judges are assigned to hear border cases. Customs and Border Protection is one of the most well-resourced law enforcement agencies in the country. And if they want to process more asylum seekers at the border, they absolutely have the ability and the capacity to do that. So I think a critical piece of good border policy has to be reallocation of resources in a way that enables them to comply with the law. We've been speaking with Melissa Crow, Director of Litigation at the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies. Thank you so much, Melissa Crow, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much for your interest in these critical issues. Earlier this month, the New York Times made an announcement. The paper has a plan, they said, to, quote, become a global leader in sports journalism, close quote. Weirdly, the statement accompanied the news that the Times is shutting down its sports page. Times sports coverage is now in the hands of something called The Athletic, a sports website and app that the Times purchased a year and a half ago. Athletic co-founder Alex Mather explained his outfit's aspirations in a 2017 interview with, as it happens, the New York Times. Quote, we will wait every local paper out and let them continuously bleed until we are the last one standing. We will suck them dry of their best talent at every moment. We will make business extremely difficult for them. Close quote. An athletic editor tweeted a week or so ago, quote, don't be fooled by the cranky sports journalism is dying tweets. The future has never been brighter. Close quote. The future of what, exactly, you might ask? Dave Zirin is sports editor at The Nation, as well as host of the Edge of Sports podcast. He's author of a number of books, most recently The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. And he's a writer-producer of the new documentary, Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL. He joins us now by phone from Tacoma Park, Maryland. Welcome back to Counterspin, Dave Zirin. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, let me ask you, I guess, to start with what you see being lost. Uh, Not everything is worth preserving, of course, and not everything new is bad. But this decision represents more than, well, you might want to look somewhere else for box scores. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've been losing local coverage all over the country in the world of sports. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't just mean that your local high school doesn't get the attention it deserves, although, frankly, that is something. Mm-hmm. It also means that all of the local scandals that invariably arrive through sports, whether it's the public funding of stadiums and all the skullduggery that goes on with that, whether it's the cozy relationships between political officials and team owners, whether it's bad behavior by players in a public setting, that in some way, shape, or form endangers the public. All of these things are a product of local reporting in terms of informing the public who these people are that we're cheering for and what these teams represent that we're cheering for. The ascension of the athletic is the negation of that kind of local sports coverage. It's basically, even though it has a lot of talented reporters, many of whom are my colleagues and friends, It is a hedge fund posing as a sports operation. 
that aims to hurt local sports pages all over the country. And the issue here, it's not just about the quality of the New York Times sports page historically. It's not just about its Pulitzer Prizes and assorted awards or names that I grew up with, you know, the Dave Andersons, the Harvey Aritons, the Red Smith, mm-hmm. for goodness sake, <laughs> the Bob Lipsites, these legendary names, Selena Roberts, Sonia Septo. It's not just about that. It's that the fact that it's the industry leader, the New York Times, it really signals how dire the situation is nationally. Well, and it sounds like there's things to know, you've started to tell us, that we need to know about the athletic in particular and the kind of rules by which they run their operation. Yeah, it's a union-busting operation, Mm -hmm. and it's about presenting itself as a possibility for outsourcing for your local media baron that is having union troubles. I mean, we just saw this in the New York Times just, what, days ago at the time we're doing this interview, a couple weeks ago, where the New York Times workers, they stood together strong, the journalists stood together. I believe it was a one-day strike, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I believe so. And what it did was it put the Salzburgers and company back on their heels. What do they do in response to that? Oh, gee, by sheer coincidence, hey, we're shutting down a section of the newspaper, of course, populated by guild workers, Mm -hmm. union workers, and we're replacing it with this non-union operation that, frankly, we're already paying for. And we're going to put it under the guise of, as Salzberger said, this is going to make us like the leader in sports. So these people, they live in bizarro world. (laughs) I mean, you know, bizarro world is the Superman world where everything is opposite. Yep. So they say, hey, we're, we're uh, going to have the best sports coverage in the world. After you fire or reassign all your sports reporters, that's how you make the step to have the best sports coverage in the world. But no, they'll say we have the athletic. It's a national operation. But as I said earlier, especially when you're talking about the city of New York, when you get rid of local coverage, what you also get rid of is the watchdog that is so important because of the corruption so endemic to the business of organized sports. It's not all fun and games. Some of the conversation makes it seem as though people really just were looking for scores from last night's games. If that's all you think sports coverage is, well, then maybe nothing's being lost. But that isn't what it can be, um, and that isn't what it is at at its best. And then... Another thing that was noted in this 2017 New York Times piece, and it's been noted elsewhere, I like the way it was uh, described, so I'll use that quote. Quote, they don't hew to traditional, they would say antiquated norms, close quote, about editorial independence. They have deals with teams, they have ties to gambling apps, you know, and that's out of the same mouth that they're talking about quality journalism. Amazing. And the infestation of the gambling apps, which I have described on other occasions, is really nothing more than a regressive tax on sports fans and preying on addiction issues that exist in the general populace uh, for the broader purpose of further filling the coffers of organized sports. I mean, this has been an economic boom for organized sports. And it's the similar mentality of the hedge fund that is really running the athletic. It's the hedge fund mentality that says, where is profit to be found? It's not to be found in creating. It's not to be found in jobs. Profit is to be found by picking the meat off the bones of what's left. It's declinism writ large. So to fund the gambling, 
that that's done by fans, which further funds sports, which makes the players and particularly ownership that much richer. Like I said, a regressive tax, but yet one that goes into the pockets of ownership, not like the lottery where it goes to like state funding for schools or whatever. I mean, it's, right. it's like a privately run lottery system. And and then, this, I mean, frankly, betting is basically a lottery system, as, as some of us have found out the hard way. <laughs> uh, but 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 the, but the second part of that, too is the connection with the teams themselves, the foregoing of editorial independence uh, has created, I mean, this is a crisis in sports journalism. And the quote you read by an editor at The Athletic named Stuart Mandel about people like myself stop bellyaching and crying Mm -hmm. about the state of sports journalism, he was using as an example the very inspiring story of the Northwestern sports journalist at Northwestern University. They uncovered this, this terrible scandal involving hazing and brutality on the football team. It caused the head coach who'd been there forever to get fired. And so he's saying, look, sports journalism's alive and well. Look at the Northwestern paper. But where are these people supposed to work? And how are they supposed to do similar journalism, even if they are lucky enough to get a job, if they work for somewhere like The Athletic that quashes their story. And even if The Athletic wouldn't spike a story like this, let's be honest, anybody who's worked in mainstream media will agree with what I'm about to say. There is something called the invisible censor in every mainstream newsroom, where sometimes you don't need an editor to spike a story. But you just know, whoa, if I run afoul of the Northwestern football team, then that could somehow affect my prospects because of the athletics relationship with that powerful institution. Absolutely. Well, of course, we at FAIR and on this show talk constantly about the conflicts between journalism as a public service and media as a business. This is a attenuation of that, you know, a a hyped up uh, evidence of that. But I always say, you know, can we at least not fall for the same BS again and again? You know, if you let us merge... We'll do double the good reporting, you know. Bigness and market dominance is going to lead to quality. You've said it really already, but this is this is codswallop. This argument. It is codswallop. That, that's a word I'm going to use uh, in the near future. Thank you. Uh, the the part though that that I want to accentuate before uh, we finish up is something that you just said that, that I think is so important, which is this conflict between commerce and principled reporting exists in every newsroom, you have to say, uh, under the umbrella of the mainstream media, of course. And yet, at the very least, in the New York Times sports section case, it was a conflict. This feels so much more like a surrender. All right, I'm going to end on that note. We've been speaking with Dave Zirin, sports editor at The Nation. You can find his piece, The End of the New York Times Sports Page is a Tragedy, online at thenation.com. Dave Zirin, thank you so much for joining us today on Counterspin. Thank you for having me. I really support and respect the work that you do. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show is engineered by Riley Baer. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. <laughs>